9. And in this we have seen Paul emphasize God's sovereignty. Now his reason for this is a means of encouragement and comfort to believers. Those who have placed their faith in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ have been delivered from their bondage to sin through the work of Christ on the cross. We're no longer bound to sin. In fact, we're delivered from that bondage and its condemnation of death and we've been made to live free in the Holy Spirit. He is now the one that controls us. We can finally do righteousness. We could not have done that before. Part of the ramifications of this is that we receive a new nature at salvation. And uh, it causes an increasing longing for heaven to be with our Savior. We find ourselves more and more aliens in this world, even though this is the world to which we were born. God's sovereignty guarantees the promises made to us will come true. And so he has comforted us with those truths. Understand that salvation of the individual begins with God's foreknowledge. That in turn results in his foreordination or predestination. That in turn results in his calling and his justification. And that in turn will conclude in glorification. We saw that in Romans 8. There's no circumstance that can separate us from the love of Christ. There's no entity whether past, present, or future, that can separate us from the love of God. That which he began in eternity past, brought to fruition in the present, is guaranteed in eternity future because God is omnipotent, omniscient, and sovereign. If he wasn't so, we couldn't trust his promise. Now, those are great truths for us, but at the same time, they bring up questions. Especially for the Jews. What about God's faithfulness to Israel? All Israel was not saved. Was God just in dealing with them? And so Paul spends chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans dealing with God's relationship with Israel. And in so doing, Paul demonstrates God's justice, his faithfulness, and his future plan for his chosen people. Now Paul greatly longed for the salvation of those he called his kinsmen according to the flesh, his fellow Jews. And it greatly grieved him that the vast majority of them were still unsaved. But this did not mean in any way that God was not unjust toward the Israelites. Paul uses God's sovereignty to show this in chapter 9. And we saw that the last couple of weeks. In chapter 10, our passage for study this morning, Paul is going to use their responsibility to respond to God's universal offer of salvation to demonstrate they also have a hand in this. They are responsible. God is just. And we're only going to begin our study of that this morning. Now thinking back, remember in chapter 9, Paul showed God had sovereignly chose Abraham to be a blessing and through him to bring a blessing to the world. And then God, out of Abraham's children, chose Isaac, not Ishmael, and not any of the sons of Torah. And then of the grandchildren... God sovereignly chose Jacob and not Esau to be the son of promise. Now, these were not choices God made based on anything in those chosen, either good or bad. They were simply made according to God's own good pleasure. He has not told us the reasons, just that. Now, that doesn't sit well with us humans. We would like to be autonomous. We want to be responsible for our own decisions. Unless it's a bad decision, then we want to find someone to blame, but... We want to be autonomous. That's the nature of what we are. 
And so we don't like the idea of being subjected to the sovereign will of somebody else. And some have used this to say that God is unjust if that's the way it is, because no one can resist his will, therefore it must be God's fault if someone's not saved. Back in chapter 9, Paul gave two reasons why God is just. Number one, man is a creature. He has no right to challenge God who is creator, and as creator has the right to do whatever he desires. And number two, the just is unfounded when we look at what God has actually done towards all people. He has not been cruel. He has not been arbitrary. In fact, he has been merciful to all people, both those who are wicked and those who are righteous. God has every right to cast the unrighteous immediately into hell for eternity. But he has not done so. In fact, he has done the opposite and mercifully, patiently endured their very presence while he still, because he is sovereign, because he is omnipotent, because he's omniscient, worked through their lives to still bring glory to himself, despite their rebellion. And then God also extends mercy to those that Paul calls here vessels of mercy, to whom he makes known the riches of his glory. Now, in the rest of chapter 9, Paul demonstrates the outworking of these truths both to the Jews and the Gentiles. Some Gentiles receive the blessing of being vessels of mercy. We've been included in being God's people. Many Jews have not received that. Many of them have remained as vessels of wrath because they've continually rejected what God has entrusted to them. And yet God has always had a remnant among the Jewish people. Those that are vessels of mercy, those that belong to him and will remain with him. He has always been faithful to them. So God is just. But that brings up other questions. It's a horrible thing when you try and answer a question and when answering it, you get more questions. But that's the nature of theology, isn't it? You get one question answered and then you think of five more. Same thing that Paul is dealing with. He's got more questions to answer. What is man's responsibility in salvation then? Because we go back to the Gospels and there's this offer. Well, how is man responsible? Can God be just if he does not give people a fair opportunity to become a vessel of mercy? And what about all the people that are are very religious and they claim to be seeking God. Have you not thought about that yourself? So-and-so, the neighbor down the street, yeah, I know they're not in, a, in, a, in the right religion, but look, they're so faithful at what they're doing, they're working so hard. And then there's the Jews themselves. What about those that have been so diligent to memorizing the Torah and keeping all the intricacies of the law as they understand it? Seems like they're seeking God, doesn't it? What about them? Is God unjust and saying that they're vessels of wrath? Why can't they be vessels of mercy? Well, those are the questions that Paul answers here in chapter 10. Now, Paul does not back away in the least bit from the sovereignty of God. But he does clearly show that man is responsible to respond to the mercy that's been shown to him. Israel has been zealous for God, but they have been ignorant of true righteousness. They have sought to earn it instead of accept it by faith. They've been given the message but they have rejected it. Now, Paul's desire there in chapter 10, verse 1, is expressed again. Because what Paul has said in chapter 9 is offensive to the Jews. What he's going to say here in chapter 10 about their ignorance and their stubbornness is going to offend them even more. And so he prefaces remarks by repeating something he had said back at the beginning of chapter 9. His own heart's desire towards his fellow kinsmen. Look there at verse 1. He says this, 
Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. That continues to be Paul's great desire. But note here something. Paul has just gotten through dealing with God's sovereignty. And yet, what is his great desire? Before he began talking about God's sovereignty and and its outworking salvation, beginning of chapter 9, even saying if he could wish himself a curse, he would do so if somehow that would bring salvation to his kinsmen. Right? The doctrine of God's election, his sovereignty and salvation, cannot cause you to become less zealous for evangelism. Not if you truly understand it. In fact, in light of Paul's great yearning to see his fellow Jew come to salvation, I think we can say categorically that if a person becomes less zealous for the evangelism, for bringing salvation to the lost, they don't understand God's sovereignty or they become comatose or dead spiritually. The doctrine of election did not affect Paul in the least in his zeal, in his yearning for the salvation of the lost. And yet so often we find those that will go to the doctrine of election and then become indifferent to the lost. That should never happen. It did not happen with Paul. It should never happen with us. The doctrine of election is true, but it does not in any way diminish the zeal we should have, the fervency of our desire to see the lost saved. We should never be indifferent about that. Now, as Paul gets in here to verse 2, He actually, I can think of him writing this. He's going back to what he lived before. He understands very well where these Jews are are coming from because he was there. Look what he says there in verse 2. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Wasn't that the way Paul was? Certainly it was. Now, zeal is an emotional fervor. It's a passionate pursuit towards something. And to have zeal for God and at the same time to be ignorant of God and what he desires has got to be a great, great, great tragedy. Paul's reference here would refer to so many Jews that he personally knew. And he knew he would still be like that except for Christ's intervention in his life. They still believed, and with all their hearts they believed this, that they were pursuing righteousness by keeping the law. Some of them actually thought that they were keeping the law and and were achieving righteousness before God. That God was pleased with them because they were so good at doing all the things they thought God was requiring. They were ignorant of the true nature of righteousness because they were actually doing the opposite. Instead of yielding to God's righteousness, they were not submitting to it. They were against it. Because they were so wrapped up in their own righteousness, they could not see that righteousness must come by faith. They were so wrapped up in their self-righteousness that they would persecute anyone that did not agree with them and try and pursue those standards. If you were not a Pharisee, then you were looked down upon because obviously you didn't know the law as well as they did and weren't pursuing it like they did. You were a second-class Jew. Paul had previously been a zealous persecutor of Christians. He tells us that in Galatians 1.13 and the story is told for us in Acts. He had been there. He had great compassion on them. But before we just get off and think this is only concerning the Jews, understand that other people fall in the same trap. Other people from all over the world. 
The Jews were self-righteous based in their adherence to Mosaic law, but didn't Paul already tell us in Romans chapter 2 about the many others that think themselves to be righteous before God because they are keeping whatever standard of conduct that they've come up with? They have come up with, well, here's what my mind tells me is right, and they've even codified that in their own standards, and yet they don't keep those standards. It condemns them. Jesus spoke about another group in Matthew 7, They believe themselves to be righteous despite their disobedience to God's commands, which they did have. He said this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? They thought they were serving God. And Jesus says to them, Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You see, their manner of life demonstrated they did not love Jesus. For those that love him keep his commandments, John 14, 15. They thought they were righteous before God because the ministry they were doing in Jesus' name. And they weren't. They didn't love him. They didn't believe him. They weren't trusting him. They were trusting themselves and their own efforts in ministry. So in all these cases, whether it's Jews, it could be a pagan off somewhere following his conscience, it could be people like this. They're still around. They think they're self-righteous and they're ignorant of true righteousness that can only come through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul points this out in verses 4 and 5. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteous which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. Paul already pointed out back in chapter 328 that man is justified or made righteous before God. How? By faith apart from works of the law. That's how we're made righteous before God. If a man is trying to become righteous through the law, then they must not fail at any point in that law. Or as James tells us, if you fail at one point, you're guilty of all. Leviticus 18.5 is the quote that Paul is referring to. That's what he's going back to. That's proof of this. You fail in the law, if you're, or if you're holding the law, you've got to live by it. You've got to meet all of its points. Otherwise, you're condemned by it. But that was the whole point of the law. It condemns. It demonstrates we cannot live according to God's standards. We must find righteousness in some other means. Whether that's the righteousness of the Mosaic Law, the righteousness of the law of conscience, or any other standard someone can come up with, that law condemns you because you can't keep it. No matter what standards you produce, you can't keep it because you will fail at some point. And once you fail, it condemns you. Man has not been able to keep up with the basic things he's placed in all men's conscience, nor has he been able to keep up with his own standards. They're condemned by the law. And since righteousness before God cannot be earned, then it must be attained on another basis. And that basis is faith in Jesus Christ. For he is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, Jesus Christ is the end of the person's futile effort to achieve their own righteousness before God. Instead, the righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed or it is uh, attributed to the believer. This is the righteousness of faith that Paul's been talking about since the beginning of the book. Paul speaks more of this in verses 6 through 10. Look there with me. But the righteousness based on faith speaks thus. 
Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And one of the first things we notice about the righteousness that is based on faith is that it is simple and it is something that is received as a gift. It's not something that is difficult uh, to, to find out or to grasp or to attain. That's the way uh, the works of righteousness are, are if you're trying to gain it by keeping the law. The works of, uh, righteousness of works is proud. It must attain for itself. It's difficult to achieve. Now, the reference here that Paul has in uh, verses 6, 7, and 8 is to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 14. But Paul modifies them slightly and includes his own parathetical comments about their meaning. Now, in the Deuteronomy passage, Moses explains to the people that the word of God has now been entrusted to them. It's been given to them. They don't have to be looking for someone to go up to heaven to find out what God's will is and bring it down to them. They have it now written. Came through Moses. They don't need to send someone, and the Deuteronomy passage talks about going across the sea, to send off to some far distant place to find someone who will come back and teach them what God's will is. They have it. They've got the word of God. It's there for them. God gave it to them through Moses. And so now it was near them. It should be in their mouth. It should be something they're now repeating that they might be able to walk according to it. It was near them. Now Paul takes that and he applies it now to the Christian as well. True righteousness is not something that you have to seek off somewhere mystically. You don't have to try and send someone up to heaven who will bring down what is the truth. How can we know who God is? How can we be saved? How can I get rid of the guilt of my sin? We don't have to be looking for that. And yet, how many religions have some prophet or a series of prophets or some group that that's what they do? They're the authoritative ones. You look to them to tell you what God has said. The idea of uh, bringing up Christ from the abyss. You don't have to send one, someone to uh, have them die and come back from the dead to tell you how to escape death. It's not mystical. It's not far away. It's been given to us. It's been written down. And it's the Bible. I am not here to be God's uh, spokesman to you. I'm here to present to you what he's already said. That's, there's a big difference between that. I'm not getting special revelation from God. I'm doing the same thing any of you can do. I'm studying this diligently and trying to present to you, here's what he said in his word. Period. You need to be doing that yourself. So it's not far off somewhere. It's not a distant thing you've got to have. We have it. In fact, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that, isn't it? Jesus Christ came from where? Heaven. What did he give us? Revelation from God. Jesus Christ came up from where? He died three days, came up from the dead, and told us how to conquer death. It's told to us. It's not something off somewhere. It's near to us. It should be in our mouths, repeating what God has done for us. It's not a distant thing. Well, what is this expression then of faith? What is this gospel message? What is this that should be near us, in our hearts, in our mouths? Well, it's what Paul's there in verses 9 and 10. 
If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. It's been given to us. But do you believe it? Are you walking according to it? Are you confessing that to others? Now this is uh, basically the gospel in brief. But the righteousness of faith concerns the individual's response to the personal work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in verse 9, Paul uses the order of Deuteronomy 30.14, which he quotes there in verse 8, in the, uh, the order. It's confession and then belief. But he reverses it in verse 10 and gives the order of chronology of how it actually works out in salvation. You believe and then confess. You don't confess first and then believe. It's the other way around in actual chronology. So he gives you both orders. But what is he talking about here? Confession means to speak the same thing or to agree with. In this case, to agree with God by stating it yourself with your mouth the specific truth that Jesus is Lord. Belief is the assent of the mind to the truth of a declaration or proposition. In this case, it is an acknowledgement of the declaration that God has raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, Paul adds here that this is a belief of the heart. Don't miss that. It's important. This is not a mere intellectual assent. Now, we tend to use the term heart to refer to our emotions more than anything else, right? I love you with all my heart. Oh, how sweet, how romantic, the rest, right? That's not the way the Jews wrote it. For them, the heart represented the deepest, innermost aspects of the person's being. It's where the thought, the will, and the motives of that individual resided. It's the core of that person's being. Now, if you had that mindset and you understood that and your spouse said to you or your loved one said, I love you with all my heart, isn't that even better than saying I love you with all my emotions? Of course it is. But there's much more involved with that, isn't there? So to say this, he's saying that the very being of the person is believing these truths. It affects the will. It affects the, the motivation for them. Now, Paul states that the correct confession the heart and the heart belief will result in the salvation of the individual. In both the confession and the belief, there are core truths that must be held by the individual if they are to be saved. In verse 10, Paul explains how this works. As with Abraham, God reckons or counts belief as righteousness. Again, it is a hard belief, not a mere intellectual assent. It is something that is held as true by thought and will, and it in turn generates the motives of your actions. Confession is that outward expression of this core belief of the heart. And Jesus stated in Matthew 15, 18, that it's out of the mouth comes what? That which is in the heart. We reveal what's down there by what we say. In Matthew 10, 32 and 33, Jesus gave warning too. Everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. You own him, he'll own you before the Father. But he says, but whoever shall deny me before men, I will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. So the confession idea here is an important one. Are you putting some action into what you say you believe? So that you're proclaiming it to others. Confession is the response of belief. Belief brings righteousness and confession confirms that belief resulting in salvation. That's how it works. 
Now these truths that are believed and confessed, they're significant. They're life-changing. And too often in American Christianity we find that they're treated as something trivial, uh, uh, something incidental. Too many people profess Jesus their Savior, yet their lives, the manner in which they live, are an absolute contradiction to what they say they believe. There's a problem, isn't there? What then is the significance of confessing Jesus as Lord and believing God has raised him from the dead then? If you're going to treat it as something trivial. Not much. But it's not trivial, is it? It's foundational and it's life-changing. Understand there is a large section of American Christianity that teaches that confessing Jesus as Lord is not a big deal. They don't see it as a big deal. They pass it off as an intellectual acknowledgement that Jesus is God with little or no consequence in the life. Not only is that idea not true, it's utterly silly. And yet there's a lot of people that believe that. They suppose justification for this idea is that, by those that are promoting it, is they want to protect the gospel from any works-based righteousness. Now that's a commendable goal. But it's not a good goal if you're not doing it the wrong way or you're doing it by stating something that's not true. But that's the goal. They argue that if salvation was dependent on people confessing Jesus as Lord in the sense that he is a master who is to be obeyed, then works are added to the gospel message. And since salvation, as we know, is based on God's grace alone through faith alone, as Ephesians 2 tells us, then any requirement of salvation that demands people uh, obey Christ must be rejected. That's their argument. Now again, not only is that blatantly wrong, it's silly. Now for the sake of argument, let me agree for a moment the term Lord here is only a reference to Jesus' deity. Let's see where that leads us. So if this is only Jesus is Lord, Jesus is God, then there are some simple questions that must be answered. What sort of God are you confessing if you also think obedience to him is optional? What kind of God is that? What kind of God is it that is not also master? The answer? He's not God at all. God, by his very nature and attributes, is master over everything. The true God is Lord without any qualifiers. And those that claim the term Lord here is only a reference to Jesus' deity without respect to any demand of obedience have created for themselves a false God not worthy of worship. Their belief is on par with that of demons who also believe and confess there is one God. James chapter 2, verse 19. However, the demons do it one better. They also understand that he has authority. How many times did Jesus cast out demons? How about the Gerardine uh, demoniac where the demons beg Jesus, if you're going to cast us out, send us over to the swine. They understood his authority. And that's what Jesus did. He sent them in, in the swine. First case of deviled ham. Yes, it's a bad joke. Okay. There are those who will say and claim that, though, isn't there? That's, that's very common now. There are also those that will say that Lord here is only a title of respect, much in the same way that Lord is still used in England as a uh, title of honor for uh, uh, certain noblemen or certain offices have that. Uh, Lord Admiral of the Seas, the guy who's in charge of the, the whole Navy of England. And they say that's what this is talking about. They also reject the idea that Lord carries any meaning of required obedience. 
Confession of Jesus Lord in that sense cannot result in salvation because such a Christ does not have the ability to save. It's only a title. People with a title can't do the actions so they don't have the power that goes with it. The sense of Lord here is a reference to Jesus' deity and his position as master because that is who he is as God. In the book of Romans alone, Paul has already asserted the deity and mastership of Jesus Christ. Back in uh, Romans 1-4, through 4, Paul asserts that Jesus' deity as the Son of God. And he continues to assert Jesus the Son of God throughout the book. There's a lot of references to that. He is God. God in human flesh. Could Jesus' nature as master be asserted any better than, let's say, uh, Romans chapter 6? Purpose of our salvation, as Paul is going through that. We are, uh, have our bondage to sin broken and we're made what? We have a new bondage. <laughs> bondage to righteousness. Our old master was sin. He's no longer old master. Who's our new master? God. Christ is. There is a mastership that is inherent within that whole idea. What is the meaning of Paul's struggle against sin that he explains in Romans 7 if obedience to Jesus Christ is of little consequence? Well, why bother to struggle? You don't need to. Or what do you do when Paul says in Romans 8 that the mindset on the flesh is death if having a mindset on the spirit with its result in obedience to Christ and putting to death the deeds of the flesh is something that's optional? So you really start destroying the whole book of Romans if you'd say it's either just a title or it only means deity without some subsequent idea that there's also a mastership, a sense there needs to be an obedience to this God. You destroy it. Or perhaps maybe it'd be best, let's go back to Jesus' own declarations. Jesus accepts the title Son of God in the sense of deity throughout the Gospels, doesn't he? Many passages. He continually referred to God as his Father, my Father, my Father, my Father who sent me from heaven, my Father who will empower me to do this. Continually, my Father, Son of God, Deity. Jesus calls himself by God's covenant name, I Am. I remember what the Jews did? They picked up stones, they're going to stone him for blasphemy, John 8, 58. Jesus demonstrated the attributes of Deity, including his authority over nature, and he did that many times. He calmed the water, stilled the, the sea, and so many different things he did there. Uh, disease. How many people did he heal? Who knows? Lots. He had authority over demons. He even had authority over death, didn't he? So, Jesus is deity. He is God, but he's also master. He demands it by virtue of who he is. Philippians 2.10 tells us that every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus is God to the glory of the Father. He is Lord. Now, they will be doing that unwillingly. But Jesus also demands and requires obedience from his followers. It's evidence in their relationship with him. Jesus plainly told the disciples that those who love me keep my commandments. Those who do not keep my commandments do not love me. What kind of relationship is it if you say you love Jesus but you don't keep his commandments? You're a liar. Okay? It comes out in how you act. Jesus commanded his followers that because all authority was given to him, they were going to the world and make disciples. What is the fruit of making disciples? You make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. That is their personal identification with Christ. And then what do you do? 
you teach them to observe or to obey all things whatsoever he's commanded. That's the task of the church. That's what we're about. Teaching people, here's what Jesus said to do, and helping you learn how to do it. And we're all at different levels and stages. We're all growing more and more to conform to the image of Christ by learning to what he said and doing it. It's following him. There's a sense of obedience there, isn't there? He's master. I belong to him. I'm supposed to do what he tells me to do. In Matthew 7, 21 through 23, which we looked at earlier, Jesus plainly states that even those who profess to minister his name, but in fact practice lawlessness, are going to be cast out from his presence because he doesn't know them. That's pretty serious, isn't it? Now, all that is to say this. Confessing Jesus as Lord is to agree with all that God has said about Jesus' deity, his sinless, being a sinless man, his being the Savior and Master. It encompasses all of that. The term Lord must be applied the way that Paul has used it consistently throughout Romans and the rest of the New Testament. You can't just pick and choose what makes you feel comfortable. This is the way it's presented in Romans. It's the way Jesus presented himself. He is Lord in the sense of deity and master. There's an obedience that it belongs to him. Now let me quickly add here that the statement concerning confession with the mouth, it does not exclude those who are mute. Now that should seem very obvious, but there are those who would actually claim that. They, they focus in on a wooden translation, forget what the meaning is surrounding verses. And so, if you can't speak, use your mouth, then you must not be able to confess, therefore you can't be saved. No, that's not what Paul is saying here. It should be obvious. There, the reason Paul refers to the mouth is because that is in keeping with the quote in Deuteronomy 30, verse 14. When the word of God is close to you, it should be in your heart, and out of your heart you should be able to express what the word of God says. The point of it is a personal response to the personal work of Jesus Christ. If you believe in Christ, there's an outward proclamation of that belief. And so a person who cannot speak can communicate in other ways, writing, drawing, however they manage to communicate. It could be uh, by their actions. You know, you're told, all you who are Christians, line up over here, we're going to shoot you. And you go that way. You know what? Your actions just said, I'm not confessing him, I just denied him. And what did Jesus say about those who deny him? Okay, our actions are included in this. It's public profession of faith. I am claiming him. He is mine. I belong to him. He is my Lord. That's what's being talked about here. Now, in regards to those who think that saying the words are enough, I had a friend in college that got wrapped in a group like this. If they could get someone just to say, Jesus is Lord, they said, ah, we got another one. We saved another person. And they were all wrapped up in this. They would try and think of all sorts of interesting ways to get someone just to repeat it. You know, even, uh, I'll give you five bucks if you say this. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Give me my five bucks. Oh, wow, we got another saved person. Is that true? No. What's the context? There is a belief that goes with it. The words aren't enough. The words have to be an expression of what you believe. Period. It's out of that belief comes a confession of what you believe, not repeating some words. Words do not save. It's belief that saves. The confession is a result of the belief and an acknowledgement of what you believe, an outward proclamation of it. Paul points out in verses 13 and 14, in fact, that you cannot call upon a being in whom you do not believe. We'll get to that next week. Now, the belief that Jesus rose from the dead is also important, for it also encompasses all that Scripture says concerning Jesus' death and resurrection. In other words, 
Just saying that Jesus rose from the dead is not enough. It encompasses the rest of it. If you said, well, Lazarus rose from the dead, is that an equivalent? No. Lazarus didn't pay for my sins. Jesus rose from the dead is significant because of why he died. He died to pay for my sins. His resurrection proves his promises. My, my sins have been paid for and his promises are true. He will keep them. He will forgive me my sins and take me to, be, to heaven with him. That's the significance of it. It encompasses all of that. It encompasses his own prophecy for it as well. Wow. There's a lot here, isn't there? And uh, as I was putting this together, I thought, okay, I'm going to get all... I was planning to get through the whole thing today. But as you can look at your watch and you see where I am, I've got 11 more verses to go. So we're going to put that off till next week. But let me wrap up some of this. Because next week we're going to finish this chapter. We're going to see more evidence. Man is responsible for his response to the person and work of Jesus Christ. God is just. Now today we've only gotten as far as the fact that there's a widespread ignorance among the Jews, and not only among the Jews, but among all people, because they continue to believe that we can attain a righteous standing before God by our own works. You can't do it. All our righteous works before God are as filthy rags, right? Isaiah 64. We can't do that. It condemns us. Our works continually condemn us. The truth is, is that God has revealed himself and righteousness and how to attain that through Jesus Christ. But man has rejected it because they're continually pursuing this, this other. The nature of the righteousness of God is found in faith in the personal work of Jesus Christ. He's revealed that truth. It's not off some distant place. We have it. It's near to us. It's so near we can pick it up we can read it. It should be in our heart. It should, the truths of it should come out of our mouths in confession as we believe it. That's that whole section. The faith that we have and confess is the belief of what the Word of God says. Jesus Christ is all who we claim to be. He is God in human flesh. Came down, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, willingly died in my place on the cross as an atonement for my sin. He was buried. Three days, he rose from the dead, proving his prophecy, proving his power, proving his claims. I am forgiven in him. I can hold to his promises. I have a future in heaven. So with my heart, I believe. I believe what the God has said. And with my mouth, I confess it openly. Here is what my beliefs are. Jesus Christ is my Lord. He is God. He is my master. I have an obligation to serve him. Not in order to gain from him righteousness. I can't. I don't serve him for that reason. I don't obey him in order to get something from him. I obey him because righteousness has already been given to me. That's why the order is important. Righteousness comes first. I believe I am reckoned righteous by God, not because of anything I've done, but because of his mercy and his grace. And from that comes a confession of this belief and an action of obedience to him. It is a result of salvation. Those who are without Christ can't obey him anyways. Because no matter what they try and do, they're going to mess it up. I can only now obey him. So it's not to attain righteousness. It's because I am righteous that I obey him. That's extremely important to understand. That's the truth. Next week we'll find in the second half of the chapter 10 even more reasons man is responsible for salvation. 
The message of the gospel is a universal offer of salvation. It has gone out through all the world. And man is responsible for his own rejection of that offer. And then God's merciful character is seen in his patient endurance of wicked man. And in the fact, as we'll see at the very last verse, 21 next week, God patiently endures us even in our disobedience. He keeps his promises to us even when we don't keep our side of it. He's faithful. That is his nature. That is his character. That's why we can trust him. That's why we can believe him. And that's why we can be comforted no matter what we face in life. That's the God that we serve. Let's pray. Father, we are very grateful for your word and that it is near to us, so close that we should be memorizing it, placing it within our hearts that we might not sin against you, placing within our hearts that we might be able to proclaim your truth to those around us. We thank you for that. Father, I don't know everyone here and I certainly don't know people's hearts. You do, though. If there are those here today that are still striving to attain righteousness before you by their own works, Father, we ask that you be gracious. Convict them of their sins that they might turn from that and turn to the only place they can find it, in Jesus Christ. That they'd yield themselves to you and find the forgiveness of sins, a new way of living that is so wonderful. Father, for those of us that have done that, that we'd rejoice even more when we think about the great thing that God has done for us in Christ. And Father, we'd be more bold in our confession. Father, to anybody and anywhere that we would not be shy about telling others what we believe and who we trust. In Jesus' name, amen.